with that great anthem ringing in our ears, we turn our attention now to the Old Testament book of the Exodus. Tells the story of the first institution of the Passover in which a people, the people of God, remembered who they were and who they belonged to. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household, If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. And the lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the story of your people and the redemption which you have won for us and for all people. We ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. Speak to us now as only a living God can, we pray. Amen. I got to be honest, this is not my favorite text of Scripture. (laughs) I remember an ambivalent feeling back in the spring when I looked at the lectionary text for the fall and I read this text and I thought, oh my goodness. But with a stiff upper lip, I charged on, and this week I've been wrestling with this text on our behalf. 
And I realize with all this imagery of blood and sacrifice and death, somehow seems to resonate with our world. These dark elements in the text seem to find expression in the dark elements in our world today, which is and continues to be a dangerous place. This week, NATO meet, meets and has tough words for Russians. Another American journalist is beheaded in Syria. So I have a tough job this morning. I was determined to come into this moment on kickoff Sunday to crack a few jokes, have some fun, and go out and have a picnic together. But this text wrestles with the reality of our world today. And I think I and you need to wrestle with it as well. It's a messy world. And I think what this text proclaims is that in spite of its messiness and its violence, God is at work. The Lord continues to work in the most mysterious ways. So let me start out by talking about baseball. That's a little lighthearted. Everybody knows that the goal in baseball is not to get to fourth base. The goal is to get home. To get around the bases and to finally score a run by getting home. On some level, we're all trying to get home. Some of us have just deposited a child or two at college in a distant place. They're leaving home. Others are welcoming a new child into their family. Or some of us simply hope to establish a home someday with someone that we love. Others of us have watched our homes grow silent as children have left, maybe spouses have died, and we look forward to finally going home to be with the Lord. We're all headed home in one way or another. So today we begin a whole new series that over the next several Sundays will focus on home. We call it home because the events and the rituals we encounter in these texts are so formational that they create an identity for the people of God. There's a shared narrative that informs every member of the family. There's a movement from a place of suffering and slavery to freedom and to abundance. There's a leaving behind what you know and journeying forward towards an unknown but a hoped-for future. Every family, every one of us, must in some way let go of the familiar the past, and take risks in the hope of embracing something better, a future that God intends, something more. 
home is the place where we find safety and security and love and abundance that is needed for human life to thrive. Some of us may remember our childhood homes as broken places, places where there were arguments, division, divorce. Some of us carry scars from the homes we grew up in. Others of us can recall important and wonderful moments in our homes around family dinner tables. Wherever we are in life's journey this morning, whether you're part of a big family or living singly, I believe God invites every one of us to come home to a place of love and safety where the Lord protects and defends us. And it always involves a sacramental meal. Now, how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the phrase, home again, home again, jiggity jig? How many of you have used that? Okay, quite a few. I wondered whether it was kind of a Midwestern thing or something. It's, it, it's a mother goose nursery rhyme, right? And it actually begins to market to market to buy a fat pig. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. Or in some versions, dancing a jig. And then it continues to market to market to buy a fat hog. Home again, home again, jiggity jog. Well, for me and my family, this was a saying that my parents would use when we'd come home from vacation and we'd come back into the house. It was only the first part of it. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. And if I remember correctly, there was some Irish twist on it. Maybe it was home again, Finnegan, jiggity jig or something like that. Families have their own identities and their own traditions that they share with one another. And it helps, I, it helps us become who we are. Helps us understand who we belong to. Each of our families can retell stories that describe why it is we became who we are. Some tell stories of overcoming great odds, maybe poverty at some point in the past, or coming to California during the years of the Dust Bowl, or the Great Depression and the way it pushed our family around the country, or World War II. There are stories of refugees, of parents and grandparents who have left their home to come to the United States, working, taking on great risks and suffering so their children and grandchildren might have a better future. Some tell stories of heroism, of great love and sacrifice. Others of losses, like the premature death of a child or a parent. These are the stories that define us. They remind us of what's at stake in this life, the kinds of challenges that our ancestors have endured and the sacrifices they've made. So my family, like yours, has a narrative. It's not unlike other Irish families, frankly. Have you ever wondered how an O'Grady became a Presbyterian minister? I mean, more often than not, don't you expect the Irish 
to come from a Roman Catholic background? Well, in the 19th century, during the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, many Irish families left their homeland to escape hunger and famine brought on by the destruction of the main food source, potatoes. Now they say in my family that an Irish seven-course meal is a six-pack and a potato. <laughs> so my ancestors, my great-great-grandfather, James Aloysius O'Grady, came to the United States in the mid-19th century. They were Roman Catholic. My grandfather became part of a very large Roman Catholic family, four boys and three girls. Two of the girls became nuns. My father was baptized Roman Catholic, but he married a Lutheran. And my grandmother came to resent the pressure that my grandfather's family put on them to have my father attend parochial schools and attend Mass and they even brought significant financial pressure on my grandfather during the Great Depression, threatening to cut him off of any business dealings with the Catholic families. Well, in God's providence, my grandfather died before he was 50 years old. My father was in the military, in the army during World War II, and he and my grandmother planned the funeral when the Irish family arrived for the graveside, they were so angry that it wasn't a Catholic cemetery. They turned around and they wouldn't go in. Now that was 12 years before I was born. But it's largely the reason my father and my mother became Presbyterians. <laughs> and every Sunday, I reenact their commitment when I come and attend worship in this context and I sit at this table and join with you in fellowship that our Lord has provided. There are certain events in our lives that get seared into our memories and into our history in remarkable ways. If I asked you this morning, where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? I bet you can remember remarkable details of that day in 1963. Or, if you're a little bit younger, I bet if I asked you, where were you and what were you feeling on 9-11-2001 when the World Trade Towers were destroyed? And I bet you can remember with remarkable clarity what happened that day, how you felt, what you heard, who you were with. Our national identity was front and center at times like that. Today, we're talking about the Passover. It's an ancient ritual that is still observed in Jewish homes all over the world. And one of the remarkable things about this ritual is that despite the fact that the Jewish people did not have a homeland from 70 A.D. until 1947, this tradition of the Passover
continued to form their identity wherever they were. It's both a religious and a national identity that gets reflected in the Passover meal. It is essentially kind of a Jewish Easter celebration. It celebrates God's redemption of a people from certain disaster. But unlike our Easter celebrations, it's a lot more solemn affair. It's not kind of a happily ever after sort of celebration. There are bitter herbs reminding the celebrants of the bitter years of slavery that their ancestors endured in Egypt. There's unleavened bread that reminds them of the need to be able to move quickly because there's no time to let bread rise. It reminds them that their world is a dangerous place. They wore the clothing of wanderers carrying a staff with their work clothes on, their outside clothes. Rather than Easter dresses and hats, they remembered God's saving act that required their participation and their courage, and they remembered that God's redemption exacted a very great price indeed. Now, it's odd to me that we should begin on this kickoff Sunday with this story. I would have much preferred to be back in the earlier chapters of Exodus where we read the story of five women, five women in the Exodus story that in an act of civil disobedience preserved the baby Moses from certain death, and that then this illegal alien ends up in the king's own house. I love the way the Bible is so starkly honest about the messiness of life. And it's honest about the violence in the world. And it claims that we have to be willing and prepared to stand up for what we believe in. Because we will face opposition. And sometimes it even gets bloody. But in the midst of life's messiness and its violence, God is working. In ways we can't perceive. I read an article recently in the Christian Century that tells of the beating of the principal of a college in Pakistan. Edwards College is in the Peshawar province. It was founded in 1900 as the first institution of higher learning along the Afghan frontier. And it's currently under the management and owned by the Church of Pakistan. In the country of Pakistan, the Constitution allows for religious diversity and it has provisions for religious groups to manage their own institutions. But, Religious extremism among the Muslims of that country has allowed the extremists to stay in power. There are three and a half million Christians in Pakistan, probably the largest minority religious group in the country. But they suffer tremendous discrimination despite 
the fact that they provide hospitals and schools and colleges. The principal of that school, of Edwards College, had been in Islamabad for his own safety, but he was given a letter of safe passage from the Interior Ministry of Pakistan so he could return to Peshawar to appear before the high court there to support an effort by the church to hold on to its own school. On his way there, his car was flagged down by ISI agents, and he and his host were hauled out of their car and into another vehicle. The agents destroyed the letter of safe passage. They took his passport and tore out the work visa that he'd been provided. And for about eight minutes, two men on either side of him beat him with their fists, while another agent accused him of being an agent for the CIA. They threatened to kill him if he didn't leave Pakistan immediately, which he did. He's now back with his family in Vermont. Somehow when I read the news and I read the scripture, I see some resonance. It bothers me, frankly. It's troubling that the Passover text is filled with this bloody narrative about God's rescue plan. It involves the death of children in Egypt. But it also seems to be honest about a world where there is a violence that takes place and where the victims of that violence see in these texts liberation. Especially these texts of the Exodus in Latin America have found a resonance for those who've been victimized by the violence of their own countries. Victims of gangs and drug cartels and coyotes who prey upon those who seek simply a better life by heading north. And they pray that God is on the side of the oppressed and the victims of violence. And they hope that through the mess and the violence of their reality, that God is at work bringing redemption into their lives and into the world. Because if not God, who will? So maybe this morning as we kick off a new year, maybe what you need is not a superficial faith. A faith that can't penetrate to the depth of your own messiness. The pain of your own life. And as we all make our way home, there is a plan unfolding by God's design to redeem us. To save us. To rescue us from all that messiness and all that violence. It depends on God more than it does us, but we get to participate in it. Remember that Jesus said to his disciples, 
go into Jerusalem and prepare the Passover meal. And then as they celebrated that meal, Jesus took the elements and distributed them and he reinterpreted the meaning of the Passover. And his followers, the disciples, later realized that he himself was that sacrificial lamb. That his blood would be spilled to protect those who belong to God. He himself becomes the sacrifice on the cross, the symbol of our faith. And by his blood, we are made whole. By his stripes, we are healed. Through a grisly and a bloody and a violent crucifixion, we find life, and it's life everlasting, and it brings us home. Not long ago, this came home to me. I was in conversation with a man who was facing the end of his life. Cancer was destroying his body. He and I both knew that the end was very near. So I asked him if he wanted to talk about his impending death. And he said simply, I know who I am. And I know who I belong to. And I know where I'm going. I'm not afraid of death. I'm going home. It's just so hard to say goodbye to those I love. Now, it's a powerful, powerful thing to have that kind of identity formation that you know who you are, you know who you belong to, you know where you're headed. That's the identity that God intends for us. This world is a messy place and it sometimes includes some remarkably hellish circumstances. It doesn't mean that God is absent or that God doesn't care. God is already at work in the most surprising ways to bring a redemption to the entire creation. And we get to participate in that effort. And we reenact our own identity as God's children every time we celebrate at this family table. And we receive the body and the blood of Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you belong to? Do you know where you're going? Then come to this family meal. Be nourished by what the Lord provides and enjoy the company of brothers and sisters in faith. You don't need to straighten your life out. Come as you are and receive the salvation God wants for you. This is the Lord's table. All who humbly put their trust in Him are encouraged and invited to come to this table, to this family meal. Home again, home again. Jiggity jig. Amen.